Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you so much indeed for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, and you know what I'm going to say? We have got loads to cram in in our time together. Uh, Soon we'll uh, come to your wonderful questions on a whole range of issues, mainly focusing on this constantly moving current political drama with this new regime of shallow revolutionaries, you know, the Taxpayers Alliance, uh, the IEA in number 10, seizing power and having as their instruments of power trusts and quateng. And it's all going so well for them so far. Uh, And of course, I'll be reflecting on all of that. Uh, Just a couple of notices. King's Place, live on Wednesday, October the 26th. uh, Rock and roll politics. Tickets uh, can be got through a link on the blurb for the podcast. So see you there. I mean, God knows where we'll be then in the light of the kind of fast-moving political story. Uh, But we will need to gather to make sense of it all. Oh, yeah, the other uh, notice, uh, those of you who kindly subscribe to Patreon, uh, where you get bonus podcasts, rock and roll politics mugs and all the other stuff, the next bonus podcast series uh, will start shortly. I was going to uh, get it to you this week, but with the Tory party conference and so on, if you don't mind, it's going to be next week. Now, uh, Scott Crosswell emailed me uh, with his great idea, which originated in an email ages ago about politicians being in the wrong party. And I'm going to think about that a bit more, Scott. But first of all, because it tells us so much really about, it shines light certainly on the current chaos. I'm going to look at government crises, apparently self-imposed cock-ups. going to be an interesting series, I think, because I'm going to explore the degree to which they were cock-ups, beginning with the poll tax, the policy that partly brought about the downfall of Margaret Thatcher uh, after she had won a electorally triumphant landslide in 1987. So if you subscribe to Patreon, you'll be getting that bonus. It'll be next week uh, once uh, the Tory conference is out of the way and so on. And it will be a great series, I think, because, as I say, how much was it a cock-up? How much was it about not thinking through consequences? You can see the echoes with the current situation. The poll tax. What the heck happened to this vote-winning Prime Minister to introduce that? Or was there some thinking around the poll tax that sort of did make sense? Anyway. Back to the current political fiasco and drama. The U-turn on the 45p tax rate uh, tells us many things, but above all, it tells us this, that Liz Truss is a poor reader of political space. This is the fundamental art of leadership. A leader needs to be able, a successful one, to read the political stage, always crowded with obstacles, and work out how far he or she can go at any given time. Truss did not do this. Intoxicated by her victory in the leadership contest, she thought to herself, wow, I've done it. Now I can change Britain with her views which are very shallow uh, on the requirements needed for the British economy to start growing again. 
And there she was, surrounded by equally intoxicated advisors, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the IEA and the Taxpayers Alliance, people who've pumped out policies plucked out of any context. Oh, yeah, if you cut that tax, oh, yeah, look at that, that that should be done, that should be done. No implications explored on public spending, on the markets and so on. And there they all were, sitting around preparing what they then called this, uh, what was it at first, fiscal event. I noticed Kwarteng now calls it a mini budget. And they were, with such revolutionary zeal, feeding off each other. Oh, yeah, sack the permanent secretary to the treasury. Oh, don't get that OBR involved. That's the old orthodoxy. We're going to show them. And instead, sensible, not just sensible, leaders with any sense of the art of leadership begin with an assessment of how far they can go at any given time. And her first thoughts, although these are unglamorous thoughts for a leader who suddenly has seized the crown, should have been this. I didn't win the support of most Tory MPs. Most of them in the parliamentary poll for the leadership backed Sunak. Sunak has described my economic policies as fantasy fairy tale policies. I also have not won a general election and therefore have yet to secure the authority that comes from a general election victory. I have just won a rather tiny parochial leadership contest amongst a few voters, many of them elderly and unrepresentative. Now, those are tough thoughts for a shallow revolutionary to entertain, because they immediately imply constraint on the shallow revolutionary's intent. But they are essential. We live in a party-based parliamentary democracy, not a presidential-based politics where one single individual wields considerable power, though, of course, in many presidential systems, they don't. Famously, the US presidents who appear so mighty to us in terms of foreign affairs spend their lives negotiating to try and get any of their domestic policies through Congress. So even that's not a model that would have worked for Liz Truss. And it is a fundamental misreading, too, of her hero, Margaret Thatcher. Now, Thatcher was in many ways a revolutionary and pretty simplistic too. She had a series of prejudices which were fleshed out by ideologues around her. Prejudice against the state, uh, prejudice in favour of the private sector and markets and so on. But where she was close to genius actually was in her reading of the space available on the political stage for her at any given time. So when she won the Tory leadership contest in February 1975, she was in opposition, of course. Uh, Truss has done all this unbelievably as Prime Minister. She kept a lot of the people in her shadow cabinet who had voted for others in the leadership contest. She made uh, Willie Whitelaw famously her deputy and in office too when they won in 79. Every prime minister needs a Willie famously. Now, Willie Whitelaw stood against her. Willie Whitelaw had voted for Ted Heath in the first round of that leadership contest. And she kept within her early cabinets those she viewed with disdain on economic policy. She was quite open about it. She called them the wets, but she did not 
purge her governments of them because she felt that she didn't have the space to do so, even after winning the election in 79. So they had quite sort of, she had quite kind of formidable people, people like Ian Gilmore, who were to, he wrote a brilliant book on his, on Thatcher called Dancing with Dogma, which I really recommend. Uh, it, it sort of challenges some of the very fashionable revisionism about the Thatcher era. And he's sort of, he's, uh, Ian Gilmore's well to the left of Tony Blair in terms of his views of economic and industrial policy. But they were all there, not because she wanted them to be there. She wanted to be the great crusader, but because she felt she needed to keep them within the tent rather than outside being destabilizing forces. And I think she knew she had the political space to be trust-like in 1981. That was the uh, year of the formal schism within the Labour Party when the SDP was formed. And she knew that if the main opposition party was split, it could not win an election. And it was then in September 1981 that she brought in the likes of Norman Tebbit and sacked a lot of the wets or demoted them or put them like Jim Pryor to Northern Ireland, which was the equivalent of a sacking, really, of a punishment, uh, certainly in that period. And so she kind of then moved quite fast. But it was only in 1988 that Nigel Lawson delivered that um, tax-cutting budget that has become revered by the Trussites ever since. 1988. She won the election in 79. It was nine years in office before Lawson unveiled, with incidentally deeply mixed results, his uh, tax-cutting budget. Kwarteng and Truss did it within days. There they were, with no costings, announcing tax cuts left, right and centre, and hinting at the same time at deep spending cuts, or actually not at the same time. They didn't think they would have to do that. They thought they could just borrow and it would, you know, the markets would be fine very quickly and the tax cuts would generate growth and all would be living in a happy paradise. The spending cuts have only come into the frame in an attempt to reassure the markets and pretend they had a plan to sort of, in inverted commas, move towards a balancing of the books. And that's when they started to sort of target benefit uh, cuts and other things. But you look at spending and they must uh, be in the same position and so will be their MPs in the Red Wall and indeed elsewhere. They're not going to cut the NHS. Indeed, they're going to have to spend more. They've promised to implement the social care levy through borrowing. He said that, Kwarteng, on his Friday statement. They've promised to increase defence spending substantially in relation to Ukraine and indeed other matters. They're not going to cut education, are they? A local government has been cut to the bone. So where are these spending cuts? And if they don't specify them and just sort of talk in general terms, which is what I think they will do, of very tight spending over the next five-year period. So the OBR can say, oh, yeah, they have got a plan uh, to uh, address the sort of huge levels of borrowing that they have undertaken to pay for tax cuts. That option is very limited. And the top rate of tax that they have U-turned on 
tells us a lot about them because it doesn't in in revenue terms as they're now saying you know it doesn't you know it's not a huge uh, difference compared with the amount that they're borrowing overall but this was as much a symbolic move as anything else this was a new government a tax gutting small state government that revered the generators of wealth and wanted to reward them and motivate more of them to generate more and they saw this tax cut as the way of doing it and what this means i think uh well, who knows where this is going to go next but when you have people who can't read the political stage like truss and quarteng evidently can't do so there will be other misreadings to come you don't suddenly learn so i think that will be interesting to see where they misread next but also it raises question of political purpose and identity when you have sought definition so early on as this sort of revolutionary prime minister uh, willing to make the wealthy wealthier and the poor poorer in order to drive economic growth you have projected a very sharp definition and when that definition is blurred because you have to embark on a u turn because there is no support for one of your key policies in this vision the vision becomes so blurred and imprecise who are you what are you for and if she had just been more patient and worked with the sunakites and remember this is a schism on the right of the parliamentary party the sunakites are the sort of thatcherites balance the book thatcherites and her lot are small state tax cuts at any price sort of revolutionaries she had to work with them at first and just do a few things and then build up to a general election and show that you know she is governed with a degree of whatever competence and sorted out the gas price subsidies and but she couldn't do it because she isn't a reader of uh, politics so what is she now is she still the determined change maker as she would see herself given that one of her changes is not now being made or is she going to become expedient which would be clearly from what we have seen against all her instincts and her own sense of governing purpose what are tory mp's going to do now they have prevailed so quickly with a new government this is all unique all incoming prime ministers get a honeymoon with their mp's with their voters Uh, remember Gordon Brown got such a honeymoon in 2007 he was tempted to call an early election that autumn that's when it all went wrong Theresa May got a honeymoon these are prime ministers who come in midway through a parliament she got such a honeymoon she did call an early election and that's when it went wrong trust by showing no emotional intelligence about the politics of space what space is available to a prime minister has become a prime minister uniquely within days of getting into office a prime minister in deep deep trouble i was going to talk a bit about the uh, labor conference but things move so fast now it seems like sort of ancient history but just very briefly a couple of things i thought keir starmer's speech was the best that he has delivered in any context in two uh, for two reasons uh, i thought the demeanor he got right there's no point if you're not a sparkling orator 
of trying the great sort of theatrical flourish, tonal changes, humour every 10 seconds, then deep passion and all the rest of it that some people can pull off. So he sort of leant forward and looked as if he was addressing almost like one individual in a room. And that, I think, works for him. And the speech was uh, more interesting in terms of he's starting to articulate a view, to quote Theresa May, of the good that government can do. Now, you know, there will be people around him who are will be nervous of that, but uh, it is absolutely essential, as May and indeed Johnson in his own haphazard way realised when he said, call me Rooseveltian. And when you're up against these small state revolutionaries, you have no choice but to begin that argument and engage with it. And I thought he sort of did, albeit quite tentatively, but he did. What I think they got wrong were the pre-speech briefings, which were all about how he was echoing Tony Blair, was going to quote from Tony Blair. Whoever is doing these briefings for him, Every time he makes a big speech, he the, the briefers evidently cite Tony Blair because cues uh, for the news bulletins that morning, uh, it was all about Tony Blair and how he was going to copy Tony Blair and quote from Tony Blair. Then the Today programme had two people on from the New Labour era to see the degree to which it was. And I noticed even Alistair Campbell subsequently, who also was positive about the speech, but condemned that the sort of that focus on the past, even though he was part of that glittering election winning past because uh, an election election winning leader has to appear to sort of seize the future and be distinct and you know there was no briefings in the Blair era about uh, Blair is going to be like Harold Wilson who won four elections you know you you look ahead and there are some in his team evidently who are so still intoxicated by Tony Blair they cannot resist framing every bloody thing Starmer does in that context it's got to be about now and the future and then when you hear heard the speech it was and by the way you know this great thing every year uh the the his spinners and the journalists will say oh wow he's going to mention Tony Blair wow this isn't like a revolution He's done it every time in his party conferences speeches. In his first party conference speech, um, which was done to no one um, somewhere, I can't even remember where it was. It was obviously during the lockdown. He said, you know, we've got to look at the three winners, Atlee, Wilson and Blair. And he said it last year and he says it every time. And everybody, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. The, the thing to do now when uh, he's up against this government and the scale of unique mountainous challenges this country faces post-Brexit, post the crash and all the rest of it. It's to focus on now and the future. And the speech did, but the briefings again echoes with 94 to 97. Move on, move on from that. But they obviously had a very good week. And it's interesting when, when you've got a big poll lead, even though you're the same person as a leader, perceptions change. And I notice people writing saying, oh, maybe the solidity is quite a good thing. Instead of this, oh, it's all so boring, you know. Poll leads and the perception of a leader as a successful figure feeds on itself. Polls are a huge part of the way leaders are perceived, even if the opinion polls prove to be totally wrong. What times, eh? What what crazy times we're living through. And uh, you are brilliant guides for all of us uh, with your questions. For those of you who want to make a point or ask questions, it's uh, steverick14 at icloud.com. And now, over to your questions.
Right, and with that question, over to your questions. Dun, 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 dun. Thank you. And say so just a reminder of the email, steverick14 at iCloud.com. Uh, loads of you have emailed. Here's a selection, beginning with uh, Paul Hickling, who's a teacher. And he says, I'm an A-level politics teacher. Listen to your podcast religiously every week. Oh, thank you, Paul. I also recommend it to my students. Oh, great. Well, I hope they're listening because they then get A-grades. And he was referring back to the podcast last week where I was exploring the three economic revolutions that various Tory prime ministers have instigated since 2010. There have been a lot in this long-serving rule. Anyway, Paul says, as part of the course, we have to teach about prime ministers and have case studies evaluating their time in office. I normally teach the prime minister's course around Easter time and was wondering, given last week, whether it was worth bothering to plan lessons on the trust premiership or whether she will be in a distant memory by then. Well, this is um, you know, a fascinating question because you can look objectively and see plenty of reasons why Tory MPs desperate to save their seats will remove her. Because I think voters have made a judgment. And once voters have made a judgment, it's very difficult to shift. And their judgment on trust is utterly damning so quickly. But prime ministers last longer than orthodoxy suggests they will. So I suspect, Paul, Take notes of the trust era. Uh, she won't be gone quite as speedily as some assume at this kind of moment of exposure, really. Exposure of the shallowness and dangerous thinking going on in number 10 um, at the moment. Uh, Stephen Townsley says, Will there need to be an emergency budget to deal with the problems caused by the emergency budget? You see, this is where... Actually, Stephen, I know you're taking the piss, but it's a good question in the sense that emergency budgets tend to trigger emergency budgets. And you can see it now as they're scrambling around for the OBR report and looking at spending cuts suddenly to make the OBR say, yeah, this all adds up. In effect, the announcement, wherever we're going to get it this autumn, will be a kind of emergency response to the emergency response. So, Stephen, although you expose the absurdity, it's happening, as often is the case with uh, mini-budgets that go wrong. Andy Kemp says, Hi, Steve. Hope you're well. Well, I'm not, Andy. I've got a heavy cold, as I just said. I've just been listening to your po podcast since episode one and ever since. Uh, I'm sorry, I have been listening. I haven't been listening to episode one over the last few weeks, or else you'd have done nothing else, Andy. Uh, continue to be amazed how political drama just keeps intensifying. And he says, I wrote last uh, November, daring to uh, predict that uh, Boris Johnson would go within the year. Yeah, well, you got that right. Almost 12 months on, dare I now hope that Mr. Johnson's successor will be gone within the next year. The UK must be a laughing stock across the globe which surely can't help to build confidence. By the way, now here's big information for all listeners in the rock and roll politics commune. I live in northeast Derbyshire, constituency of one Lee Rowley MP. We've got a lot of listeners in uh, Lee Rowley's constituency. Although he's touted by some of your listeners as a potential future prime minister, I doubt he will last very long. 
His popularity here is dropping like a stone. Yeah, well, Andy, thank you for keeping an eye out on the fate of uh, the great Lee Rowley, who we all see as a future Prime Minister on this uh, podcast. And it was originally an observation made live at uh, King's Place. But on a more serious note, those red wall seats, which were always vulnerable because the coalition that Johnson uh, forged in December 2019 were based on all kinds of contradictions and fake promises or false promises. Um, Now, when you get uh, uh, Truss and Kwarteng openly planning to cut taxes on the hugely wealthy whilst making life difficult for a lot of those on low incomes, um, those red wall seats become vulnerable. It's going to be very interesting to see what red wall MPs do in the coming months. As I say, I sense the House of Commons is the place where these dramas are going to be played out rather than party conferences. Thank you very much, Andy. Jeff Strange now, big news, Jeff Strange. uh, He used to uh, email during the lockdown and say, oh, Steve, I'm running like you down in North London on the Parkland walkway and all this kind of thing. Anyways, I think Jeff, he's, he's leaving us all. He's moving to Ireland. So, Jeff, keep us informed of your new abode. Uh, when asked about the idea of reducing the top rate of tax by Laura Coombsburg, Liz replied famously that it was nothing to do with me, it was to do with he, quasi quartet when really she should have said we. Yeah, Jeff is doing he, me, we. A lot was read into that on the Laura Koonsberg uh, interview when she said it was uh, the Chancellor's idea to reduce the top rate of tax. She may well, Jeff, shaft quasi quartet. She's ruthless enough to do so if it will save her own skin. But this is so much a joint project I wonder whether the sacking of Kwarteng or claiming that he did the 45p saves her. I suspect it makes her more vulnerable because it is so obviously her passion to cut uh, taxes on the wealthy and what she couldn't wait to do. And in that interview with Koonsberg, she was so unequivocal that she was going to cut the top rate and then was evasive about what she was going to do about benefits. And she's as a bigger believer as Quasi Quartex, so she can try and shaft him. But Jeff, I don't think it's going to work. Sarah Kay writes in, Your last podcast was therapy in trying to make sense of a very dark world, but frightening on bleak on so many levels. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Well, I hope today's has been one laugh after another. Thank God, as Sarah says, for the rock and roll cooperative, keeping us all sane. Exactly. If we, us lot, get together every week and at King's Place and all the other places where I do, where we get together for the live shows, we can keep going through the madness. Anyway, Sarah poses a load of questions. I'm only going to read out uh, one now, Sarah. I've read them all. Did all of those Eurosceptics from the 80s and 90s, lovingly called the Bastards by John Major, form the ERG. That's that, you know, parliamentary hard Brexit group in the parliamentary party now. Or was it a more subtle metamorphosis? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I'd go for the subtle metamorphosis, Sarah that there were the bastards in the 80s and 90s and those bastards made life hell 
for John Major, especially over the Maastricht Treaty and that kind of thing. But those bastards were not up for leaving the European Union, nor was Thatcher, who was sort of guiding the bastards to John Major's torment and despair. But then along came the ERG group, who were harder than the bastards. So the bastards sort of formed a path for the ERG group to not just follow, but develop. There's a book to be done about it. I mean, where I admire them is in their unyielding focus to the courts and it, it kind of infecting the Tory parliamentary party with their passion. And Remainers never did the same. They're never the same focus on highlighting the advantages of Britain being part of the European Union. This lot did. But I think it was, as you put it rather well, a subtle metamorphosis from one to the other. And what power they have wielded. Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, now our French correspondent, Dominique Jewell. She's been translating the French newspapers on our behalf. And she said, Steve, I thought you and our collective might be interested in hearing some of the headlines in the French print media, which I've read this week. Yeah, so here goes. Nothing works anymore in the UK. The UK sinks into another political crisis. Is this the end of the UK? Economic storm in the UK, the worrying stubbornness of Liz Truss. Spectacularly catastrophic suicide mission of the UK. Crisis in the UK, according to Liz Truss, the markets understand nothing. And Dominica adds, in addition, my hairdresser wondered how a nation which can stage such spectacular and beautiful state occasions can end up with a succession of dud leaders. She writes, I had no answer other than to offer a Gallic shrug. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Dominica, thank you for translating the latest reports of how the UK See, one of the ironies is this was so much about a sense of British exceptionalism, that Britain could grow if only it had a low tax burden, in inverted commas, even though, as we've discussed here before, business leaders were saying their main concern was labour shortages because of Brexit and the pandemic, uh, the rubbish infrastructure in parts of the north of England and the transport situation there, which deters them from investing and so on. And yet we've got this sort of low tax madness as the, the answer to all these things. Um, so, and, and of course, as part of that, it's meant to be this great Britain, you know, oh yeah, the glory of the funeral, the Queen's funeral, and then an economic growth strategy from a new government. And it's being condemned by the IMF as, as if Britain is this kind of third world country and uh, look at the french newspapers so yeah it's all going well all going well thank you uh dominica now noah keith is one of many who've been wondering about the power of 55 tufton street where some of the influential think tanks reside that have suddenly come to power had a lot of emails about this and there was a very good program on Radio 4. Uh, Noah points out uh, a half-hour program. Look, at, look it up. I think it's actually called 55 Tuss, Tufton Street. Great idea for a, a program because these um, right-wing, small-state, low-tax think tanks have, have suddenly got to power. They're in number 10. 
the Taxpayers' Alliance is in number 10 now, the Institute of Economic Affairs. They have no feel for politics. They are blinkered economically. But it's utterly intoxicating when you feel you have finally reached the centre of power via Truss and Quateng. And that's part of the explanation for the madness. When they sat around planning that mini-budget, they would not have people say, oh, don't do that. The think tankers who have made it to number 10 will say, are you sure that you've gone far enough? One of the things that's going to have to happen yet again is a reconfiguration of Truss's number 10. It is it is weak, and with her weird mix of think tankers and people recruited from Linton, Crosby and Public Affairs, and they are not up to the scale of the challenge that she faces, frankly, just to survive. Uh, Thank you, Noah, and many others who asked about these think tanks. Andy Week says, Just a random thought occurred to me as I travel on the train from Bristol to Exeter. Hope the train is running, Andy, as you sit there. Well, of course it is, because you're on it. Truss attempts to mirror Thatcher. Johnson modelled himself on Churchill. And to a lesser and clearly less worryingly extent, Starmer resonates partial Blairism. It got me thinking, going back 40 years or more, did the likes of Wilson, Heath, etc. try to mimic their predecessors in any way? Or is this a 21st century thing? Keep the podcast coming. They keep me and I'm sure the rest of our community sane. Yeah, we, we could all end up mad in this period, Andy. So we've got to keep together to get us through it. There's a really interesting question. Uh, and I think it reflects the rise of... Uh, less substantial leaders, younger leaders, uh, without a clearly developed sense of their public selves. So they look back to others. Cameron sort of tried to almost imitate Blair, for example. And it didn't happen. Uh, Heath was utterly distinct, too bloody distinct in some ways. Uh, Maybe he should have uh, copied more charming presenters of a case, a public case. Harold Wilson was completely unique. So was Thatcher. Who was she copying? Uh, But you're right. Recently, Andy, we've had people who do model themselves on others, although not always. I mean, Johnson, well, I suppose Johnson, you know, modeled himself on Churchill and P.G. Woodhouse and a sort of weird combination. Thank you very much. Uh, John Bennett writes in and notes, you know, I was talking about how Labour needs to seize the term freedom. It's the most potent term in British politics. Thatcher seized it with an ardent, resolute determination in the late 70s onwards, the term freedom. And she was going to free people up from the state and voters aren't against freedom. John Bennett suggests for Labour now, they should be saying uh, offering freedom from poor educational attainment by international standards freedom from a major and growing housing crisis, freedom from poor quality, poorly paid and insecure employment, freedom from a major crisis in our health service. Yeah, I completely agree. Keir Starmer uh, might be sort of emphasising solidity, but he needs to seize the term freedom because if there's any way back from this, and by the way, I don't think there is, but this term freedom, Uh, remains very potent in British politics and has been largely owned by the Conservative Party since 1979.
news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Gavin Collins from Galway in Ireland. Uh, Gavin says, I'm still uh, deadheading roses here in my Galway garden. Variety is the spice of life in our collective. Exactly, Gavin. And out in the garden, listening to the podcast, cutting roses or whatever you're doing, deadheading roses, absolutely part of the glamorous pursuits. Uh, And the question, you've previously said that leaders such as Blair have been able to teach voters and have thus explained the narratives underpinning their pitches. I get the impression that Keir Starmer quite effectively adopted a teaching style in his conference speech this week. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I think that there was, as I said earlier, in demeanour, and to some extent there's more to be done in structure, an element of the teacher surfacing, and it's essential. It's not a luxury of leadership, it's essential. You've got to explain not what you're going to do, but why you're going to do it. The values that your policies are based on, and then the policies that arise from the values. And if you don't answer the why question, you won't win. And I think um, he began to do so, and I say the demeanour was more... Well, look, here I am. I'm going to explain what I'm about and what I would do. And thereby you become a teacher. Thank you very much. Caroline, who I said gave me the socks. I know the focus in the UK is not on Europe these days, uh, now that the UK has freed itself from the so-called shackles of Brussels. But the rock and rollers might like to know that in her third State of European Union address, the EU president, Ursula von der Leyen, announced $140 billion euro windfall tax on energy companies abnormally high profits a different approach from that taken in the uk I, I, that's interesting um it's so insular you hear about labor proposing a windfall tax but you lose what other countries are doing including the eu keep us informed caroline of what's happening thank you uh, dan writes from Riyadh in saudi arabia Noting that in order to gain a majority in the next election, Labour needs to increase its 2019 performance by roughly 120 seats. And given the Scottish share has reduced from 56 seats in 97 to one single seat in 2019, how do you think Labour can overcome this situation? Well, it's the perennial question, uh, Dan, as you um, uh, reflect in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, that Scotland, this dominant fiefdom for Labour, has gone and won't come back uh, speedily. Although a lot of people I spoke to from Scottish Labour this summer during the Edinburgh Festival said to me, if there was a sense that Labour could win in Westminster, that would help Scottish Labour in Scotland. So let's see, because that sense now is beginning to form, and there is a chance of a Labour government. Will Scottish voters help that chance be realised or seek to 
hinder it. Uh, thank you, Dan. Finally, Dorothy Aitken. Oh, I'm looking forward to your P- the the not mine, all of ours PR special, particularly as the Labour Party seems to be moving in this direction. What type of PR will be crucial? Perhaps different systems should be examined thoroughly before we have to decide. And I look forward to what you have to say about that, Dorothy. You 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 get me to one of the areas that worries me about this whole thing. We had I had a email this week from uh, Nick in Edinburgh, who uh, is a regular email who I met and he he formed the centerpiece of a podcast I did while at the Edinburgh Festival on the importance of climate change. Uh, and he has written about the various electoral reform systems. I don't think, Dorothy, I'm, I, I don't want to preempt my electoral reform special, there is the bandwidth at the moment, if there is a new Labour government, for a never-ending debate about which voting system. Now, that is an argument against doing it altogether, but I don't think that should be a decisive argument. I think there is a solution to that question sitting there, but that's a little teaser for the electoral reform special. But I have to say, Dorothy, I, I, I know what you mean. Each it, it is important. Of course it's important what voting system is adopted if there is a new one. But, oh, God, you know, endless debates and discussions about which voting system as the British economy totters or falls over the edge of a cliff, would not be right. And I think that's one of the reasons why Keir Starmer, in advance of an election, is sort of not focusing on it. But thank you. You're right to say that is fundamental. But I think there is a way through without a never-ending debate as to which system. Uh, At which point, because I know that will get some of you very worked up. Let's stop, shall we? Because we've been going for some time now. You'll have all done the 10K runs and baked the bread and walked along coasts and, you know, had some whiskey or whatever. Um, These are really epic times. So let's get together again, shall we, next week. Please uh, join me at King's Place on October the 26th. Get the tickets in the link. And, you know, we're going to be, I think, in the once the party conference season is over, back at Westminster, where things are going to be really rough for Liz Truss and Quasi Quartet. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, yeah, what times. Have a good week. Take care. Bye. Thank you.